Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading, Hebrews eleven four through 7. This is the word of God. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverence, fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful to come to your word this morning. It is certainly a privilege to hear directly from you. And we just pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak through me, that it would be clear, Lord, that it would be... uh, truthful to the, to the message and the spirit of your word this morning. And I pray that you'd transform us. I pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us with power, that we might see transformation in the way we think and the way we live, that we might persevere to the end for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. In uh, William Nicholson's play, Shadowlands, the character of C.S. Lewis says this, We read to know we are not alone. And that's certainly true when it comes to reading chapter 11 of Hebrews. Stories of the people of God, people of faith in times past. We read and are comforted to know we are not alone. Helps us persevere in our own struggles, in our own faith. Last week, Bentley took us through the first three verses of chapter 11 where we saw that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith is not just trying really hard. Faith is holding fast to the promises of God, holding fast to Jesus. It's really the opposite of apostasy, the opposite of falling away. Faith keeps trusting God until the end. Trusting God to keep his promises, even when it might seem impossible that God would deliver. Now, for the rest of chapter 11, the author provides example after example to know we're not alone. As Schreiner says, this chapter reminds us that we are not the first to take this journey. Many have walked this path ahead of us, and thus we are not alone in our journey of faith. Later, the author calls this the great cloud of witnesses. Imagine the, a theater of those who have gone on before, that we might continue to persevere 
to the end. People who held on to God's promises, even though there was no visible evidence what God was promising would be realized. Each character is introduced by the phrase, by faith they did such and such. This phrase helps us to see the main point of the chapter, what faith looks like. Another thing this phrase does is remind us he's not moralizing their examples. All of these people were sinners like us, mixed packages. And certainly, while there are certainly characteristics that are worth emulating with each of them, it's important to see these things were done by faith in God, believing his promises and looking to this fulfillment. We're going to look at the first three examples this morning, and this is the first of what will be five sermons on this hall of faith, as it has been called, where we can glean what genuine faith is by illustration. After looking at these three examples, we'll we'll glean this morning some principles, I hope, that will help us to see what genuine faith looks like. What does it do, and what are its benefits? So first... Let's consider the faith of Abel. Let's look at verse 4. Let's read it again. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. If you could keep your finger there in Hebrews 11, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 4. The three people we'll look at this morning are found in three successive chapters there, 4, 5, and 6. We'll start in Genesis 4, verse 3. After Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve, we read this in verse 3 of chapter 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Abel is the first man of faith in the scripture. His parents, Adam and Eve, lived in the Garden of Eden, and before the fall, they walked and talked with God. No need for faith when you're fully in God's presence. But Cain and Abel were the first to have the need for faith in this fullest sense. They were both born after the fall, outside the garden, separated from God's presence, and they needed to trust in a God they could not see the same way their parents had. And we read here that God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And it doesn't tell us specifically why that is. Some argue Abel's offering was accepted because it was a blood offering, and there's no forgiveness without blood, but this isn't that kind of an offering. There's nothing wrong with a grain offering. We see Grain offerings as part of the later tabernacle system. Furthermore, Cain is told his sacrifice would be acceptable if he did what was right. So this was an attitude issue. You see sin crouching at the door. There was a sinful disposition with Cain. Abel's offering was sincere. 
and sacrificial. He gave the best, the first fruits. Cain's offering was not sincere. It was a token offering. Some of the fruits, not the first fruits. And unlike his brother, it was not given in the context of love for God. Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. As Schreiner says, the wellspring of obedience is always an attitude of trust. Cain didn't trust God, and that's why his offering was not accepted. R.C. Sproul says this, God was very concerned, as we see throughout the Old Testament, with the heart attitude of the person who brought the sacrifice to the altar. Very often in the Old Testament era, people simply went through the motions, offering their sacrifices in a perfunctory way for which they were hypocrites. Example, God says in Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. So it is the heart behind the worship that matters to God. Cain was going through the motions. Abel, on the other hand, had a heart that loved God and prioritized God. The author said, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's faith teaches us even today, right now, doesn't it? Even murder by Cain could not silence the faith of Abel. Donald Guthrie says this, is the earliest demonstration that death, even violent death, cannot prevent the message of faith. Abel shows us that faith pleases God and that is memorialized for us in the scripture. Let's now consider the second example. Back to keep a finger in Genesis, go back to Hebrews 11, the faith of Enoch. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Enoch is an interesting example because very little is written about him. If you flip now back to Genesis 5, one chapter later than Abel, this is what we have. In the middle of genealogy with all kinds of names, Genesis 5.21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and then had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, or he was no more, for God took him. As Guthrie says, in the, in the rather dull genealogies of Genesis 5, the brief comment on Enoch shines like a jewel and is hardly paralleled anywhere else in Scripture for concise effectiveness. So the author of Hebrews picks up on two interesting details about Enoch that, that Genesis highlights, details that separate Enoch from the rest of the many names in the account. First is the way he lived his life. He pleased God because he walked with God. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second thing is the unusual end of his life. The, it says God took him without dying, without him dying. Other than Elijah in the chariot of fire, Enoch is the only example in the Hebrew Bible of someone going to be with God without dying. The writer of Hebrews says he did not experience death. It's interesting, in verse 5, he emphasizes it five times in five different ways in this one verse, 
that he didn't die. Obviously, really important to the author. Now, the author does not expect that the readers are going to escape death. But he's making an analogy between the reward given to Enoch and the reward given to believers in the resurrection when they ultimately will escape death. Enoch walked with God by faith, and this pleased God. This this means he had an intimate, daily relationship with God. He trusted God, which made him live the way God wanted and do the things that pleased God. Only a man of faith could enjoy such close communion with God like this. Apparently, interesting, he did not always walk with God. It says, after he fathered Methuselah. So like many of us, perhaps, Enoch did not fully realize how dependent on God he was until he had children. Parenting tends to expose our need for God, doesn't it? Well, trust, dependence on God, it pleases him. First Peter says, when, when we're tested by trials, the genuineness of our faith is revealed. Okay, and God considers that, the genuineness of our faith, our dependence, our trust on him, more precious than gold. And without that, faith actually can't please him. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here he mirrors what he said back in verse 1, which Bentley showed us last week. The assurance of things hoped for is this truth that God rewards those who seek him. And the conviction of things not seen, believing this God whom we cannot see. Faith requires an object. You don't just believe generically. You hear sometimes people say, just have faith. You gotta have faith, man. That's not what he's talking about. It's not an optimism or a a positive thinking but a trust in a specific object or person, a specific being. We need to know who that being is, first of all, what he's like, what he says, and then trust him. So this is much more than intellectually believing that God exists. It's even more than understanding exactly who God is and that he exists. It's committing your life to him. Drawing near to him because of what he's promised. As Philip says, few people that really deny the existence of God, but many deny the relevance of God. We see this more and more today, what uh, some have called apathyism, where it's like it's not only, it's no longer whether God exists, but whether it matters whether he exists. So many today agree God must exist, but they don't seek him. O'Brien writes, seeking the Lord is a common biblical expression, particularly in the Psalms, to refer to those who rely firmly on God, trust that his promises will be fulfilled, and find in him, that is God, the source of their deepest satisfaction. It's a big difference between just that and and, and just believing in God. The most pleasure in life, in other words, is derived from trusting God. In other words, he, God, is the reward. As John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Psalm 36, 8, they feast on the abundance of your house. I love this. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. 
It's not enough to believe in God. We must believe God and act on his promises. Enoch had that kind of relationship with him. Okay, third, let's consider the faith of Noah. Back to Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. A lot there. In in his third example, the author references Noah, so we read about him in in the chapter after Enoch. So let's flip to Genesis 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. See that again. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Then he goes into these instructions. Verse 17, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Then after more instructions, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah is a perfect example of the first verses in chapter 11 of Hebrews. He had assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. He believed God's warning about the judgment to come, though he had not seen any visual evidence that any of it was true. God gave Noah instruction about something that could not be seen, a flood that would be so great and all all in the world would be destroyed. Noah's faith was manifested in trusting God's word and believing that what God said would in fact become reality. Noah could have no idea what this would be like. He'd never seen or heard of anything like this. This would be an unprecedented outpouring of God's wrath against sin. But nevertheless, he believed God. He also believed God's word about salvation and how his family and him would be saved from that flood. There's no more striking example of certainty in things not seen than building an ark hundreds of miles from the nearest ocean in front of a watching world that would ridicule nonstop. And it says he built it in reverent fear. He understood and believed God's holiness and justice. He believed God's judgment was coming on the wickedness of humanity. And he built the ark to deliver his family from that judgment. You know, the ark doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't appear to be that valuable. Unless you see it against the backdrop of the devastating flood on the horizon. Only then is the ark seen in its beauty and glory. And that's just like the cross of Christ, isn't it? By itself, the cross, the grace and mercy and love of God demonstrated on the cross doesn't 
really makes sense, not really appreciated by people. Ho-hum. The cross only makes sense, and its value only appreciated against the backdrop of the devastating judgment on the horizon. God's perfect holiness and uncompromising justice against all the evil and sin and wickedness. Only then is the cross seen in its beauty and glory. Noah's the first person in the scripture to be called righteous. He was not perfect, but righteous in position, not always in practice. He believed God's promises and the Lord bestowed on him righteousness, inherited, it says, through his faith. Noah illustrates that salvation from the judgment of God comes by faith alone. Faith is the channel through which righteousness comes. For the remainder of our time, I want to pull out eight truths about genuine faith. I think we can see in these examples of these three men, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And I pray these will help us connect their faith to our faith and the way we think and live our lives as believers and to know that we're not alone. Number one, genuine faith believes God's warnings and promises. Again, Noah had never seen or heard anything like the flood that God had promised. No evidence at all of anything like it in, in history. But he believed that God would do it. He also believed that God would provide salvation for those on the ark because that is what God said he would do. We cannot see the white throne judgment. We've never seen anything like what John says he saw in the future in Revelation 20. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, they are thrown into the lake of fire. That, we've never seen anything like that. But that's what God says is going to happen. And those with genuine faith believe him. Also like Noah... God has told us the way of salvation, the way of escaping that judgment. For us, it's not an ark. It's Jesus Christ. He's the way into the book of life. We believe what God says about forgiveness of sins found in Jesus and his cross. We believe what God says about death not having the last word over those who have been raised with Christ. The other two men, Abel and Enoch, sort of encapsulate this chapter, this hall of faith as a whole. Abel stands for everyone who died because of their genuine faith in God's promise. Enoch stands for the principle of escaping death completely for the faithful because of his genuine faith. Cockerell says says it like this. All like Abel will die without the fullness of what God had promised. All, like Enoch, are promised triumph over that death. Genuine faith believes God's warnings and promises. Closely related to this, number two, genuine faith obeys God in reverent fear. Consider how Noah's faith is demonstrated in obedience to God. 
When I first moved to Denver in the mid-90s, I attended a fairly large church on the west side of town. And sometimes before the sermon, the preacher would invite all the kids to come forward and sit at the front of the auditorium. And he would ask them questions and dialogue for a couple minutes before dismissing them to Sunday school. Kind of a risky endeavor, I think, but that was pretty cool to see. Well, one time I remember he, he asked the kids, why did Noah build an ark? And one of the kids shouted out, because God told him to. <laughs> and the preacher paused and said something like, uh, you basically stole my whole sermon. <laughs> Obedience is inseparable from belief and faith. Genuine faith doesn't just believe something intellectually or academically. Imagine if Noah said this, yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a devastating flood coming, and the only way to be saved is in this ark that must be built, and I'm sure God's telling us the truth. So what are we going to watch on Netflix tonight? Or how's my 401k doing? Or imagine he's in his home group Bible study and he says, hey, let's split up into discussion groups and and talk about what it might look like in our daily lives if we actually built the ark. No. Genuine faith translates into action. It has to, or it's not real. That's the point of James in his letter. Faith without works is dead. Because if it's nothing more than something you say or profess or believe in your mind, but do not act upon it, it's not real. If your life is not being lived much differently than an unbeliever, if your time, your money, your energy is not being spent in drastically different ways than an unbeliever, then we have to examine ourselves, don't we? Is my faith genuine? Is there, and there's a reverent fear that comes with this self-examination. God is not to be trifled with. Noah took great care in how he obeyed. It says several times in the Genesis narrative that Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Every detail. And there's a deadly false teaching today, and it's a false teaching that has lingered in the church since its inception. Throughout history, taking different forms, we might call today easy believism. The idea that minimizes obedience and repentance is not that important. God is gracious. It doesn't matter how I live. He'll forgive me. That's what he does. Man, read the New Testament. Read the Gospels. There is strong, severe language of judgment for such attitudes. So there's a tension we must grasp between God's holiness and his grace. One image that I've shared before that's really helped me over the years with this tension is a picture of walking on a footbridge across a deep canyon. You have these guardrails and thousand foot drops on either side. And the, the, the only way the illustration works is you have to assume with me that the bridge and rails are absolutely trustworthy, okay? Absolutely trustworthy. That gives you freedom and security. No need to walk tentatively. You can even run across the bridge. It's safe and secure because of the rails and the guaranteed sturdiness of the bridge. There's security there. You don't need to live in fear in that sense. We can have confidence. 
boldness. But at the same time, you are acutely aware, aren't you, that you are very close to certain death and that your safety and confidence has nothing at all to do with your own ability to suspend yourself in midair, but everything to do with the trustworthiness of the bridge and the guardrails. That's the kind of reverent fear the Bible speaks of. You don't mess around with God. His word is like the guardrails. His warnings are legit. You don't mess around with the rails. His word keeps you safe. His promises are true and secure. But your obedience demonstrates the reality of your trust in him. If you're climbing over the rails and disobeying his word, you may not really be on the bridge. That's the warning. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. Maybe only he could say. Very profound. This is how he describes a true Christian maturing in genuine faith. He says this. As he has more holy boldness, so he has less self-confidence. As he's more sure than others of deliverance from hell, so he has a greater sense that he deserves it. He is less apt than others to be shaken in faith, but more apt than others to be moved by solemn warnings. Jonathan Edwards. Genuine faith obeys God in reverent fear. Number three. Genuine faith does all life with God. Genesis talks about, tells us Enoch and Noah walked with God. In the New Testament, it was referred to as walking in the Spirit living continually with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit's presence and power and direction. This is not something passive. This is active, dynamic, and practical. Romans 8, we walk in the Spirit. 3 John 4, believers walk in truth. Ephesians 5, we walk in love, not selfishness. We walk in light, not darkness. We walk in wisdom, not foolishness. Best example, of course, is Jesus himself, 1 John 2. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John MacArthur says this, Jesus did nothing, absolutely nothing, that was not from the Father's will. If we want to know how to walk, we simply need to look at Jesus. From his childhood, he was continually about his Father's business, and only his Father's business. He constantly walked with God. Those throughout church history have used the Latin phrase quorum Deo, meaning living before the face of God or constant awareness of the presence of God. And because of Christ and, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we actually have intimacy with God, a daily treasure. Peter Lewis tells a story about a Chinese pastor who was imprisoned in a labor camp. The captors would make him clean and empty the camp latrine and spread it in the field as fertilizer. The smell was so bad that the guards stayed far away and gave him plenty of space to do his job. And the pastor grew to love his lowly occupation because it gave him an opportunity to walk with God. In his solitude, he could talk and sing praises to God aloud, something that was forbidden when he was with everyone else. 
That dung heap where he worked, he joyfully named his garden and sang the great Austin Miles hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. This is the life of genuine faith in God. As Philip says, his presence transforms even the worst of circumstances into beds of roses simply because he's there with us. Genuine faith does all life with God. Number four, genuine faith worships God on God's terms. You cannot simply approach God however which way you choose. Many religious people in the world follow the way of Cain. Cain acknowledged God, but did not worship him the way God instructed. He came to God on his own terms. He expected God to be impressed, I guess, with his way of doing it. MacArthur says, Cain became the father of all false religion. Cain believed in God, but he did not believe God. Cain said, yeah, I believe in God, but I'll do what I want. I mean, I'll check the box. I'll give him a token of what I have, and that seems reasonable. But to waste the best in a sacrifice doesn't really make sense. It's not efficient. Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's the way of Cain. Godliness is not efficiency. Just ask the woman with the alabaster jar pouring a years of wages of perfume on Jesus' feet because Jesus is worth it. Abel says, all I have, all that I am, belongs to the Lord. He gets the first, he gets the best. Cain gave a token, Abel gave sacrificially. And God was not playing a game with them, like, let's see if they can figure out what I want. No, he was very clear. They knew exactly what to do. God even gives Cain another chance. Afterward, when Cain was moping, God said to him, will you not be accepted if you do what is right? But sin's at your door. Cain wouldn't have it. So many today like Cain. They go through the motions and check the box. Of course I believe in God. I'll carve out a token for God. I'll give him some of my money. I'll give him some of my time on Sunday morning. But my very best is going to my career. My very best is going to my hobbies. I need to be efficient. I mean, the best part of me is going to be spent elsewhere. That's the way of Cain, not the way of faith. God wants it all. And Abel understood that. Abel worshipped God on God's terms. He took the very best and offered it to God because he had a genuine relationship with him. He loved God and obeyed God, not out of a, a stingy obligation, but because his life was about God. To live is Christ, Paul says. Do you agree with that? Could you say that? Is your very life about Jesus? Or is it about something else? A genuine believer says, my life is about him. Not something I give a token of my time and energy to. No, he is Lord. He gets everything. Genuine faith worships God 
on God's terms. Number five, genuine faith pleases God. We're told here that we cannot please God without faith. Humanitarian efforts may be so impressive to us. Religiosity, moral scruples, personal codes of conduct. But if any of those things are divorced from faith, none of it will save you on Judgment Day. Even the best things done, if not done for the glory of God alone, if they're not done in the context of faith in Christ alone for the acceptance and qualification of that service, they do not please God. Paul says in Romans, anything that is not coming from faith is sin. Here's the deal. You cannot get clean water from a poisoned well. The water may look really refreshing, but it's deadly. It's the same with all activity that does not come from the wellspring of the source of genuine faith. Trust in the promises of God and a desire for His glory alone. So only by faith can we please God. But I want to say it differently for emphasis. Genuine faith pleases God. God delights in the obedience of His children. There's an unfortunate misapplication You sometimes hear about Isaiah 64, that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. Now, that is true for unbelievers. The audience in Isaiah are sinful idolaters who have no relationship with God. They're living in disobedience. They think they can appease God by doing some righteous acts. God says, those righteous acts, divorced from a proper relationship with me, are disgusting to me. These people are trying to please God while violating the covenant. That's impossible. Not so with a child of God in the covenant. If you're, a chi- if you're in Christ, you are his child, and he delights in your obedience. Your works done in faith are no longer filthy rags. They're washed in the blood of Christ. I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. <laughs> I'm delighted when my children clean their rooms, Okay? But they're not earning their way into my family when they do so. I'm delighted in the context of the relationship we already have. They do not clean their room in order to become my children. If a kid came up to me on the street and said, Hey, I'm really good at cleaning my room. Come and see. Maybe you'll adopt me into your family. That's not going to impress me. But when my own child does it, it's in the context of the relationship we already have. And their obedience pleases me. Likewise with the people of God throughout the scripture. God is pleased by your obedience. Because he's already made them a part of his family. And if we are in his family through Christ, then our obedience that comes from that faith pleases him too. So remember that. Number six. Genuine faith condemns the world by obedience and suffering. We see that Enoch was spared from suffering and death. Not so with Noah, who was ridiculed. Certainly not so with Abel, who was murdered. Noah continued building the ark hundreds of miles from the nearest sea. It made no sense to anyone around him. They ridiculed. We read in verse 7, Noah's faithful obedience condemned the world. Well, today, Christians continue building something that makes no sense to the world. When you spend your time, your energy, your money 
on the things of God. Ridiculous to them. Like Noah, Christians must press on in, in grace and truth. And this serves to condemn the world. Noah's ark under construction was clear visible evidence of his faith to an unbelieving world. They scoffed at it, and this adds to their condemnation. Today, I think of mainly our young people. The sexually moral standards that young Christians take are scoffed at. I mean, why would you play by the rules of some deity you've never seen? Or I think of, heard from Nick Sullivan this morning. Think of the Sullivans giving their giving up their security and all that they have, the relationships here in, in the U.S. to go on mission. Why? People might scoff at that. Just adds to their condemnation. Even the smallest light in a dark room cannot help but expose. R.C. Sproul tells a true story about a leading golf tour pro who was invited to play in a foursome with then-president Gerald Ford, Jack Nicholas, and Billy Graham. I know this sounds like a prelude to a joke, but it's actually a true story. After the round was finished, a friend of the golf pro came over and asked him, what was it like playing with the president and Billy Graham? And the pro cursed, just disgusted, and said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat. And he stormed off to the practice tee. And his friend followed him at a distance, and after he let some time pass for him to settle down, his friend asked him quietly, was Billy a little rough on you out there? Embarrassed, the pro sighed and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. (laughs) Well, what happened? It's actually very simple. Billy Graham did not have to say anything. He did not even have to look at him. He's so identified with the Bible and with Jesus and the things of God, his very presence was enough to smother the man and make him feel convicted. 2 Corinthians tells us about this. We smell like death to unbelievers. It's uncomfortable. It says we are the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, which to them smells like death and condemnation. It's unpleasant uncomfortable. Martin Luther said this. This is a great quote. The pagan does tremble at the rustling leaf when he feels the hound of heaven breathing down his neck. He feels crowded by holiness even if it is only made present by an imperfect, partially sanctified human vessel. Genuine faith results in a life of obedience and suffering in front of a watching world, and that serves to condemn the unbeliever. Number seven, genuine faith leaves a legacy of blessing. Raymond Brown says this about those who are watching us live out our faith. They're influenced not only by what we say to them, but how we respond to what God says to us. In other words, we may preach the gospel to our neighbors or kids, But they're perhaps more impacted by how we respond to God's word in our own lives. Are we obedient to what they know the Bible says to us? Verse 4 says, Abel, though he died, he still speaks. He still speaks through the scripture. We're blessed by his legacy. Pirates of the Caribbean, notwithstanding, dead men do tell tales. They speak to those who will listen. Abel speaks to us about genuine faith, making God number one in your life. Noah's descendants were obviously blessed by his faith and obedience. They owed their very life to him. 
Moffat writes this, Death is never the last word in the life of a righteous man. When a man leaves this world, be he righteous or unrighteous, he leaves something in the world. He may leave something that will grow and spread like a cancer or a poison, or he may leave something like the fragrance of perfume or the blossom of beauty that permeates the atmosphere with blessing. When you consider those in your life who have influenced you and and passed away, some left a legacy of pain, didn't they? Maybe their lifestyle left behind a mess that you're still recovering from. But some leave a legacy of blessing, don't they? A life of integrity to the gospel. A life well lived for the glory of God. And we can be thankful for those we know and loved who walked before us as we seek to do the same. Those with genuine faith leave a legacy of blessing behind them. And then finally, number eight, genuine faith inherits righteousness and eternal life. We read in verse 7 that Noah, by his faith, became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. This means he inherited right standing with God. Good standing with God, which is required for eternal life with him. Noah inherited that good standing via his faith. These men... We read in Genesis, they're not perfect, and women, they're not perfect. We read in Genesis that before Noah did anything regarding the ark, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God bestowed his favor, his grace on him, and Noah responded to that grace in faith. Noah did not earn righteousness. He did not earn good standing with God. He inherited it. His faith and trust in the Lord was the vessel by which the Lord bestowed his righteousness, this good standing on Noah. For us, right standing with God, good standing with God is bestowed on us, not by us earning anything, but on the basis of our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus for his forgiveness, which he offers anyone by his death and resurrection and receive his righteousness, His good standing with God. God then looks at you with Christ-colored glasses. The very righteousness of Jesus is reckoned to your account by faith. You are clothed with Jesus. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And unlike Noah, you're not asked to believe in something that's never happened. The, The flood was unprecedented and seemed very unlikely. God asks you to believe something that's already happened. The death and resurrection of his son Jesus. The way to eternal life is through him. Jesus is the ark that you need to get into to be saved from the judgment that's coming. By trusting in him, giving your life to him, and you will be saved. Now don't just know that. Don't just believe it. Don't just talk about it. Act on it. Obey it. Live it. That's the kind of faith we see from those in this chapter. And it's the only kind of faith that matters. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're grateful for your teaching this morning. We're grateful for the righteousness that's available to us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who do not know you through your Son. May they repent and turn to you even today. And Father, for all of us 
Certainly there are things, Lord, please, Holy Spirit, bring things to mind where we have not fully dedicated to you, where we're holding back, perhaps. May we be, may we be all in with your promises. May we go all the way with Jesus. And may we persevere for his glory alone. Amen.